Christmas and is this the, really the shape of my Christian faith? Or maybe if some of you are looking at those who are here at Christians, thinking perhaps of you, John and Joan, if I may, is it's a special day today for you. And you're looking at the Christian integrity of marriage of a couple and you're thinking, well, I'm looking in on the outside as if through a darkened mirror and thinking, well, how have they done it? How have you survived to this point? I'm sure it hasn't always been a bed of roses, though most times it has, of course. <laughs> and so we can hold this image of a mirror of this church of Pergamon up to our lives and see what it says about ourselves. And perhaps the mirror is to be seen as hollow when held up to the first thing I'm going to share with you about that church in modern-day Turkey today. Maybe it is this. Frivolous Christianity. Take it or leave it. Attend church when I feel like it. Read the Word of God as Scripture when I've got the spare time. Live a Christian integrity when it doesn't impose on others or doesn't reveal too much. Fitting it between my important pastimes and hobbies is shown to be a deep distortion. Because for these Christians, John writes, Christ knows that they live in a hard place. I wonder what that hard place is like. And so just a first thought here. They are standing apart in a hard world from a very hard world. In verse 13, if you want to turn to that in your Bible, it's on about approximately page 100, 1234, page 1234. If you were to look at verse 13, we know it's a hard place because the first thing we are told is that a man called Antipas has been murdered. We know nothing about Antipas. There are some ideas, which I'll come on to a little bit later, but it's the mere fact of the silence of this man that says it's not about Antipas that this passage matters. He was clearly a good Christian, most probably a leader in the Christian church, but it is not about Antipas. Just that it is not about me and it is not about you. It is about something far deeper that we are part of, the Christian church of Christ. But we find that he's been murdered. And if you were to look into the Eastern Orthodox tradition, you would find that they believe that he was encased in a life-size cast metal bull, and then the bull would be lowered over fires. And it would happen in a temple, because it was part of the act of exorcising the demons. And there is, there is a John writing Christ's words saying, this is a place of the demonic. This is a place of Satan. This is where Satan not only has been, this is where Satan lives. And here is a leader of the church being killed in a way that is attempting to appease and exorcise the demons. I think you can see the irony of that in what I'm saying, can't you? So why would that happen? Well, you see, Pergamum was the centre of the Roman Asian province. It was the centre of everything. It's a bit like London is the centre of the UK, allegedly. But then if you go up north, apparently it's Manchester. Go right a bit, and apparently, or left, left a bit, and apparently it's Liverpool. And actually, if you're a football fan, it's wherever your football team happens to be that Saturday or Sunday. This was the centre of the Roman Empire. It's where everything happened. Everything looked to this place for the Asian part of, of the Roman Empire. The same as uh, Ephesus, really, from Ian's sermon two weeks ago, very nearby to each other. And in 29 BC, the first ever cult 
temple cult to the emperor, the Roman emperor, was built in Pergamum. So this is where it starts the idea that the Roman emperor is the God, not just the Caesar, but is the God incarnate on earth. And so that makes it a very difficult place for this new group called Christians to try and exist, particularly when they are existing as exclusive people of faith and they can't just accept everything coming around them and bring it in, as other groups, as you'll see, have done. And so there in 29 BC, a statue of Caesar was built and they would bring incense and they would lay it at the stone feet and they would light it as an act of homage to Caesar, and they would say the words, Hail Caesar is Lord. Three temples were built, only one was there when John writes, but three temples were built, so two more later. And then there was already another temple, dedicated to Zeus, high on a crag above the city, dominating everything for miles around. 36 metres in height, and you can still see it, but not there, but in Berlin today. And so there were early gods, gods, there were Greek gods, there were Roman gods, there was Caesar as a god, there was temple worship, there was incense, there was naming humans as gods, there were so many images of snakes, because uh, a snake and the god associated it was a sign of healing, uh, that they even had a temple with live snakes living in it. So that's not something I want to suggest we start doing here but so they were venerating the very animal which if you then cast your mind back to the book of Genesis and the image of a snake there a snake that is a sign of evil and so we then go back to Antipas being murdered in a sign of a way to appease the gods and then we're told if you look further on in that passage there's the next few words it, it's, um, it's Satan's throne isn't it I mean what a statement to make it is Satan's throne. Why would that be? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so when, when these Christians arrived in town, they really come as just another bunch. Everybody's been meeting these religious fruitcakes, as it were, for about 300 years. I mean, you've got the first, first pre-Greek lots. Well, that's fine. We'll accept them. Then you've got the Hellenistic Greek. You've got the Greeks coming, and they're going to bring their gods, Zeus, and things like that. And then you've got the Romans coming along, and they want their Caesar to be God. Well, that's all right. We'll go along with that. And we'll all sort of put it in a big pot together, and we'll boil it together. And it'll be okay. And then along come these people called followers of the way, the one way, these Christians, and they are set apart. And they don't fit the mould. They can't be poured into this pot. And that is a challenge for the community around them. And boy, is it a challenge for the Christians. I long to make Christianity comfortable and acceptable. I have rewritten this sermon this morning. I had a different sermon. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, John and Joan are going to be bringing family and friends, and who knows who's going to come to church? Can I talk about the demonic and Satan and the occult? Can I talk about the power of Christianity to be different? Don't I really want to talk about how we're all very nice together? And please come to church, because it's really very good for you. 
And I thought, I am denying the very message of Pergamon Church here, which says Christianity is not always a comfortable place to be in. And sometimes it marks you out as so different, even your own family think you're a bit of a fruitcake. A nice one, I'm sure, as it is. Making it comfortable and acceptable is a false comfort. It's like lighting a fire in a hearth in the middle of winter without going out and getting the wood in in the first plate to keep it going. And so eventually the fire will go out and because you've had the taste of warmth, it's even more uncomfortable and cold and wet and damp in the house than it was in the first place. You've come in on the edge of it and you've become aware of it, but now you've got to ask yourself, is the fire to be kindled and lit? Is it going to be burning like a burning bush? And then I thought about you, my friends, and I wondered about this question for you. Are you absorbing the world around you into your Christianity, or is it the other way round? Is Christianity from your life permeating through your children and your grandchildren, through your life and your work, through your calling and through your attitudes, through where you direct the money and how you live your life and how you organise and how you keep your home going. Which way is the pressure going? Because the natural pressure from Pergamon is to go in on you, is to go in on you and and envelope you. Some work by a group called the Barna Institute, very interestingly, they asked Christians, mature Christians, to list the 10 things that were an impact on their life. I wonder what you would answer for your top thing that impacts your life. You're coming to visit me. And probably the first thing you might say, if it's positive or negative maybe, is is a parent or a grandparent. Or maybe it'd be a work colleague, maybe a husband or wife, maybe a family friend. They asked these people to list things. And the things that came out from these Christians were things like television, films, friends, family, books they read. In the top ten list of things, not one of them mentioned the Word of God or the Christian church. I wonder how that impacts your life, what the models you follow are. Here is a different model for you, my friends, to take home and talk about at lunch today. How about modelling your life on Antipas, a man we know so little about other than he died, possibly in a cast calf? And so three things briefly. How can you then model on Antipas, on the Pergamon church? Well, firstly, you can stand firm in your belief. In the church service of the Book of Common Prayer, there is this little phrase just before communion. Hear what comfortable words our Saviour Christ saith unto all who truly turn unto him. Comfortable words that challenge your and my preconceptions about life and about the Word of God. And in verse 13, the church has remained true to God's name. They've withstood the pressure to an extent. How? By not renouncing their faith. How do I stand for my faith? It is a gorgeous faith. It is a beautiful faith. It is a faith to die for. It is a faith faith to be a fool for Christ for. It is a faith to give up everything for. It is a faith to forfeit my life but save my soul for. Your faith and mine. All well and good, you say. And then along come Christ's little buts, don't they? Christ's word but in verse 13 That's great, you have not renounced the faith when Antipas was killed. But, verse 14 to 15, there are twin pillars rising out of the sand of Balaam and Nicolaitans. And Ian very carefully skipped by the Nicolaitans two weeks ago, perhaps hoping I'd refer to them this week. So I will for you. You need to know a little bit about them. 
because they're probably just words to many of you. Let's go to Balaam first. Compare yourself to this, my friends. Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam involves idolatry and sexual immorality. In Numbers chapter 22 to 24, we have this amazing story about a talking donkey. You heard it first here, some of you. It's a fantastic story. I'll leave you to decide whether it's the word of God and true. And so Balaam is following, he's a prophet, but not of God. He's following the, the uh, calling of a man called Balak. And in Numbers 22 to 24, he comes up with a strategy. We find out that strategy that he can thwart God's work in the people of Israel uh, in Numbers 31, verses 8 to 16. So later on, we find out what his strategy was. What is his strategy? It includes getting the children of Israel to commit sexual immorality with local Midianite women. And then in committing this trespass, the men of Israel would then mingle with the pagan gods, worshipped by these women, and everything would become squashed together in a religious mishmash. It's called religious syncretism. Bring it all together, put it in the pot, and it will all come out stewed together. And then you've got the Nicolaitans. They're, they're called early Gnostics, which mean nothing to some and lots to others. Um, and the word Nicolaitan means that they were there to conquer the people. They were conquerors of the people. Compare that to the Christian, uh, Christian idea of sacrifice, service, and love. And what makes them so deadly is that they give the outward appearance of piety, but inwardly there is no reverence for God. They'll tolerate almost anything and everything. They are what are called apostates. They have been people that were people of the Christian faith, they were maturing in the Christian faith, they've heard a different thing, and now they are trying to bring it right into the centre of the Christian church. And they're trying to teach something very, very different. And very attractive, because it waters down the hard call of Christianity. Eventually this led to the writing of the Christian creeds, to stand against these things and say, no, this is what Christianity is about. Let's bring all the Christians together, all the bishops, and work out what it is that is Christianity that defines this as not Christianity. Ignatius, who was killed in Rome in AD 110, who was a student of the man that wrote the book of Revelation, brands them lovers of pleasure, givers to slanderous practice. They affirm unlawful sexual unions that are a good thing, that they are a good thing, and place the highest happiness in pleasure. And I'd just like to compare that with you to the guiding principle of our society today, maybe even your family, which is this. As long as you don't make me feel unhappy and you feel happy with what you're doing and being, that's okay. That's okay. Of course, the minute I make you feel unhappy, it's not okay. I wouldn't like to be a Muslim in France today, though I disagree with the burqa. It's not okay. And so what they're saying is, have all the good bits and the cake and the fruit cake, go and distort it in a mirror and it will all be okay. And John is writing to the people in Pergamon, be careful. Christ has seen that the false teachers have brought it into the very heart of the Christian church. A man called William Barclay says, one of my last quotes, they were urging the Christians of Pergamon to conform to the accepted standards of the world and to stop as Christians being different. The early church was in constant danger of being tainted by and relapsing into the standards of the world around them. How are you doing? 
in standing firm in your belief. And then we get this idea of standing with heart and soul in keeping with Christ. And that's more than just outward actions. Matthew 22, 37 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Those three things entwined together. And then in verse 12, we are told of Revelation here, we are told that God divides like a two-edged sword. There are only seven references to the sword uh, here in the entire, like this in the entire Bible. Six of them in Revelation. The word of God is quick, it is powerful, it is sharpened on the two-edged sword. And what does it do? What does the word of God do? It pierces even to dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints of your body and your marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of your heart. If you are asleep, my friend, tonight, this morning, but outwardly look awake because they're comfortable chairs, I don't know but God does through the word of God. If you have a hidden sin in your life, yet you seem to have maturity of Christian life, I don't know, but the sword of the word of God casts down into it and splits the two. I've only ever seen a, a sword wound once on television, a very sad one, when an MP was attacked by a samurai sword about three years ago. You probably saw it. It was hideous. Cutting straight through. The word of God cuts through and eventually it will cut through between those who have renounced Christ and those who have accepted Christ. And it will cut through. And the flaming sword of the Spirit of God that was in the Garden of Eden and stopped them turning back will stop others entering. And this is what they're saying. Keep your heart and soul with Christ. The cut of the salvation from condemnation it is a very, very powerful thing. So standing apart from the world, standing firm in your belief, and standing with your heart and soul, good and right with Christ. It would be a beautiful place to be. When we went through that Hall of Mirrors at uh, Black Gang Chine, it was great for five minutes. But there was a sense of which the distortion became overpowering and you became bored with that which was almost normal. And as a thrill seeker trying to experience greater happiness, we were looking for the next mirror. You know what I mean, don't you? And we were moving on faster and faster. Look, this is more outrageous than that one. And you forget the other one that made me look really ugly to this one that made me look pig ugly which is hard to imagine, I know, I know. But we were almost rushing around faster and faster because we had moved away from the first point of entry, which was, well, actually, this is what I look like normally, the normal mirror, a normal mirror. And we had forgotten what normality was. Normality in the Word of God is very clearly written as to what it is to look like in my life and in my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and also where I'm heading towards. And yet then when we had left the Hall of Mirrors, you go through this open doorway with no door and you go straight out onto a path, some of you have been there, and you are looking out over, what is it, this English, English Channel? The English Channel is heading south. The English Channel, and all you could see is sea and the vast expanse of blue and white of sky. And it was like there was a freshness permeating. 
and the air was coming in and the sunlight was hitting us and the darkness of that room with all its distortions was gone. And we had a great day. And then at the end of the day, we returned and you have to return through that hall again. And what was interesting, we as a family, and every family I noticed, did the same thing. We did not pause at the mirrors very long. You see, we'd seen and experienced something far better. And then we went back through, and the the distortions were still there. The distortions of the world are still there around you and I today. Your decision is to test them with the Word of God and the part of Pergamon and say... Where is there distortion in my life and in this church today? Let us pause to pray. Rather than lead in prayers of words, we're simply going to leave a time of silence for your own prayers to speak with God this morning. To tell him of the things that are burdening the heart and soul and to seek his call on our lives. In your mercy, hear these our prayers, our cries of freedom, our calls from the prison and darkness of the dungeon. And may you grant our every wish that conforms to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.